Why, hello, my name is Father Peter Russett, and you've inadvertently or advertently tuned in to the Word on the Hill with Spelunky Guys. My name is Scott Powell. I've never said it like that ever. It felt weird. No, it's a it's a variation on how you often say it. <laughs> that was different. It was distinct, though. It was distinct. It was singular. Be- because um, I combed my hair over like I'm a distinctive <laughs> gentleman from the 1918 time period. Yes, but as it's drying, it's becoming nor- more normal looking and puffier. Oh, I need to put some pomade in it then. That would do it. That would. You did look like a 19 or 18... Hundreds. 1890 or so? 1890 or so is right, because your handlebar mustache is just barely handlebarring. Yep. And you're, you, I'd never seen you with the full part in your hair. Well, it is the 12th Sunday of Ordinary Time, somehow inexplicably. So, so somehow all of the big feasts are done. We, a Sacred Heart of Jesus happened Friday, Immaculate Heart of Mary on Saturday, and now we're on 12th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Has it been 12 weeks since the last time we were in Ordinary Time? Is that how the ordinal numbering works? You I am always a little I confused. I do not know. Okay. There's got to be an explanation, but that's fine. We're inexplicably on the 12th Sunday of Ordinary Time. But we <laughs> are back in ordinary time which is significant right that um well because trinity sunday was 10th um and then corpus, corpus christi, christi was 11th corpus christi sort of ends the whole season uh, not the the easter season's already over but it ends the season of feasts that follow the easter season right, right exactly so now it's just good old ordinary time just regular good old jeremiah just jeremiah he had the bullfrog, so he was a bullfrog. All right, our first reading is coming from Jeremiah chapter twenty, verse ten through thirteen. Jeremy spoke in class today. Is that what they're saying? Is that Nirvana? No, that's a Pearl Jam. Oh, Pearl Jam. Jeremy spoke in class today, so Jeremy comes. That's as what a derivative that song says. Jeremiah. Yeah. I've never known what the words Jeremy are. Jeremy spoke. There's a whole genre of music, which is grunge rock from the nineties, that I don't know most of what they're saying. Man, I thought you would have hit the grunge, man. No, no, I loved it. I just don't know the words. Oh, well, because they're inexplicable. Yeah, because right. No, exactly. That, I, I love. Oh poems. no, I, I was into grunge. Okay, man. Good. come on, man. Okay, I our, wore plenty our... of flannels in the nineties. <laughs> Dude, you're legit, bro. Thanks, man. Okay, our psalm is uh, Psalm sixty-nine. So um, verses eight to ten, fourteen, seventeen, thirty-three to thirty-five. All righty, and our second reading is coming from the Book of Romans, one of the more complicated theological statements of Romans. Dude, uh, somebody described this section of Romans as um, a class five rapids. That if <laughs> that that it's really technical, and you got to tic tac and really understand how to actually navigate through, because uh, any a single statement can actually draw you under. Yes, I will take the analogy even further. Hit me. And say that if you can simply find the white caps, you will find where the current takes you and you don't need to work as hard. But sometimes, so you know how to read a yeah, river. I did a lot of white water. Reading the river and finding where the tallest white caps are will actually get you through the rapids because Paul does have a, a logical course that he's taking you through. That if you lose sight of those white caps, you're actually going to lose the course of his whole train of thought. But if you follow them, it Everything fits with everything else, dude. That's beautiful. Love. What a dude. I love what. I'll just. I'll just put it out there. I love white water white water analogies to yeah. spiritual matters, dude. I need to white water more. I just love it. Do you? I love it. Then right. our, our gospel is uh, from Matthew chapter ten, verses twenty six to thirty three. Indeed, uh, with a gospel acclamation coming from John fifteen twenty six b to twenty seven a, which is just really bizarre. It's. No, well, I mean, 
the 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 content of John fits quite well, I think. Okay. So I'll give the church that. Okay. Jeremiah. Jeremiah. This is a context heavy podcast. And I will Man, I won't I read verbose. the context. You did? I did. I totally because because I was reading this and I was like, hold on. I was uh, I mean, this is the massive speech of Jeremiah that we all remember. You duped me, Lord, and I let myself be duped. Yeah, yeah. And this is the second half of that speech. But but yeah. what comes before that is uh, you got to tell us about. I want to tell you about the geopolitical context. What? Because that this is one of the least understood or preached about. At Tim Gray, it was it was our mutual friend and mentor, Tim Gray, who really enlightened me to this years ago. And I'm like, this changes everything. Really? And this is not taught about very much. Well, there's two there are two pieces. One Ooh. is just the geopolitics. I'm getting the goosebumps on it. I we we actually taught we ended up talking about this passage from Jeremiah in the little Bible study I, I do with Focus and our our staff yesterday. And um, they really they really had some beautiful insights. But what what Jeremiah says again, we're we're catching him like you said, smack in the middle of this long lament. Basically, he's crying out to God, saying, "This mission that you gave me stinks. This is miserable." And he says, um, "I hear the whisperings of many. There's terror on every side. They're saying, denounce. Let us denounce him. All Ooh. those. Well, let me back up because there's a lot of emotion that that Jeremiah gets out here. Our, right. our conversation with uh, our our little staff Bible study yesterday was just about how how brutally honest Jeremiah is with God about how much he's hurting and how he would not be terribly sad to see justice served, that, that there, are, there are things that happen. So let's take a step back for a second. Um, Jeremiah, I find to be one of the most geopolitically most fascinating times in the entire story of salvation history, because this is the period. So he starts his prof- prophetic mission He's, he's a Levite, by the way. So the, he comes from a priestly family. He's not a priest. He's not formally a prophet. I mean, he is a prophet, but he, he kind of comes from the outside. He's not in the inside. He's not like an Isaiah who was in the courts of the king and stuff like this. He's an outsider from a priestly family. And he is called by God to start ministering during the reign of a guy named King Josiah. Do you remember Josiah? I do. He was the one. He was really holy. He was the one. They were, they were renovating the temple after the Assyrians had kind of invaded, and they just... <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but they, they discovered Deuteronomy. They were, they were like, like oh, no, <laughs> shoot, we haven't done any of this. Yeah. And so it was Josiah who was like, oh, geez, we've missed all of this stuff. So he institutes these massive reforms and tries to call people back to the Lord. And he eventually is cut down by the Egyptians in his mid-30s in, uh, in battle. And he has two terrible, terrible sons named Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. And they are the last two sitting kings of Israel before they are destroyed. And most of Jeremiah's stuff happens in the reign of those two kings. So basically what happened was this. Assyria, I remember the nation of Assyria, came and they invaded the northern kingdom. They took him off into exile. They forced him to intermarry, right? That, that whole situation with the northern kingdom. They tried to destroy the southern kingdom under the reign of, of uh, Hezekiah. And there was this miraculous intervention. God spared them. He saved them. They didn't get destroyed, which made everybody a little bit spiritually overconfident, right? And right. They, they, it kind of encouraged the, this thing they already sort of had that we can kind of do whatever we want to because we got God in that little box in the hill in that building. He's going to protect us. We're cool. God's in the box. I'm going to live however I want to. So once Assyria was conquered, Assyria begins kind of a a downward spiral of of their political influence. Babylon conquers Assyria. So Babylon and Egypt, at this point in history, are the competing world superpowers to try to to vie for who's going to be the the dominating force, right? It's kind of like China and America. It it kind of is. I've been trying to think of analogies, but it's kind of like that. 
And that's actually fascinating for what comes next. So Babylon is now in control of the Holy Land, technically. So Israel is basically a vassal state to the Babylonian Empire. And they don't like being a vassal state. And they don't like being under the thumb of the oppressors of Babylon. And so to turn and get protection or safety or find a way out of this, they turn to the Egyptians. Which in the course of salvation history, turning to the Egyptians for salvation, if you know the historical you know, train that this has gone, you're like, ooh, that, that feels weird. Like, that doesn't seem quite right. God, throughout the whole course of salvation history, has been saying to Israel, you are to turn to me for your salvation. You are to turn to me for help. And they say, mm, we're going to go to Egypt. And so they turn to Egypt for protection rather than God and rather than putting all of their faith and trust in him. Which is a, just a boneheaded move given their history with Egypt. It's a boneheaded move given their history with Egypt. But on another level, Babylon, who technically controls them, says, hold on, you're doing what now? You're going to our sworn enemies for protection? That's actually an act of treason. You are our people. We control you. And you're going to our enemies for protection. You've acted treasonously towards us. We are going to attack. We're not going to take that lightly. And so it enters into this battle, this war between Israel, who is not that powerful, to be honest with you. They don't have, which is why they have to turn to the Egyptians. They just happen to sit smack in the middle of the major trade route between Asia and Africa and the rest of Europe. And so everybody wants this parcel of territory, not because they're super powerful and influential, but geographically they're significant. Which is uh, totally, a, I mean, part of God's plan. That's what Absolutely he, he right. wanted Egypt, I mean, to, to have the Holy Land, to have Israel yes. drop dead in the middle of everything. Absolutely. But they take it to mean, no, we are super important. We are awesome and amazing. Not that God is those things. But because everybody wants us, we must be amazing. And so so basically what happens is that, that Babylon is ticked off. Um, they go to battle. Jeremiah is now constantly showing. He's called by God to go to the temple itself. And he actually, Jesus will later quote the words of Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah is the one who says, look, you have made this temple, this house of God, into a den of robbers and thieves. You made it a, 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 a lucky magic trick, right? That I can live however I want to. I can abuse the poor. I can oppress. I can worship other idols. I can do whatever I want to as long as I come back here and offer my little sacrifice to this God and this temple. And then I'm going to go out and do whatever I want to. He's like, you've made it into a lie. Yeah. And you've made it something it is not. And if you don't clean up your act, God will take this place from you. Right. It's not just your lucky magic your rabbit foot that you keep in your pocket. He will take it from you if you don't listen. Things get worse. Um, it's not just that, that um, Jeremiah is ignored or written off. It is, and this is where this prayer comes in. It's they're like, how dare you? How dare you speak against us? And if you're speaking against the temple, that means you're speaking against Israel's God, which means you're not a legit Israelite. And you don't belong with us, and we're going to kill you, and we're going to stone you, and we will destroy you. How dare you tell us that we are not in the right place with God? Right. And so th this is bad, and Jeremiah has the worst job ever. And the last piece of context I'm going to give you is when it gets worse. And this is what... Um, does not get taught about him out, for good reason, because I don't know what you do with it. So I'm just going to throw it out. Hit and me. You can do whatever you want. Hit me. After it doesn't work, after Jeremiah's warnings and prophesying and saying, you've got to clean up your act, does not work, and the kings continue to rebel and put their trust into everything other than God that they can think of, Jeremiah comes with one final message. And I don't know if you remember this. He says, okay, Israel, now that things have gotten as bad as they've gotten, now that your sin has gotten out of control, 
what God wants of you is to put your heads down and submit to the attacks of the Babylonians. Because if Let you them conquer you. Because if you do it, it's gonna go well for you. But if you right. don't, right. which is like the absolute worst message. I Allow mean, them to conquer you. And yeah. then God will say it, it, it's I was thinking about the analogy of Mary in this when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, who is what, 12, 13, says you're gonna conceive and bear the son if you say yes. She says, I know that I haven't consummated this marriage. Everybody else knows that as well. Right. I'm super young. I'm going to be pregnant, which the only way out of this for me is to be buried up to my waist and pummeled with stones until my skull fractures. I've seen this happen. I know what happens to unwed mothers who get pregnant out of wedlock. I've, I've seen this happen in my village. And Mary is facing this inevitable, I know exactly what the consequence of my yes to God is. But she says, I will accept your will because I know that you're big enough to have a way out of this for me. Right. Mary has more courage than the entire nation of Israel who was told, accept the word of God and I will get you out in a way that you never even dreamed. Mary, I don't know. I was thinking about Mary as an analogy for this. Right. Who does actually, and if you take the analogy further, because we have this notion that all of Christology, all of our understanding of Jesus needs to be rooted in understanding of Israel and what Israel was meant to be. Because what does Jesus eventually do? He allows himself to be conquered and overtaken by a foreign enemy who puts him to death so that he can rise again from the dead and conquer death. But and he's, he does and it, what Israel was supposed to do. Right. Because he, and he's always telling his disciples, he's like, hey, guess what, you guys? Right. I'm going to be killed and be raised on the third day. Right. Right. But he still has to face being killed. That's like, it's and then like I, Peter Petrelli in the first season of Heroes, you know? Like, mm, mm. <laughs> I trust you, though. Yeah, yeah. But I also keep thinking about Mary, who, and maybe Mary is the better analogy because, I mean, Jesus is fully human, and I don't fully understand theologically what Jesus understood and what he didn't. Right. But Mary also knows a sword is going to pierce your This is going to happen to your son, and Mary actually submits to letting her son be overtaken by this. I mean, how many times how many times though in our lives do we know that we have to do something and be honest even yeah. though the consequences may be dire? I had to do it when I was in college. I had cheated on a test. Mm. And the the and the professor, I just felt like he knew and I was like I have to go to him and 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 if you I got to own this. I got to yeah, accept this. You yeah. cheat on a test in college and you're thrown out of college, period. Yikes. And so I went to him and I was like Hey, I'm sorry. I, it was it was on some uh, it was on some uh, um, uh, the the floor plans of cathedrals in art history. It's like the absolute most devastating thing that I could have cheated on. Let's be honest about that, because you know how much I love. You know, like I do, I do. So then, because yeah, I I wanted to do it right, and I hadn't studied. How do you and cheat on a floor plans of cathedrals exam? Sorry, that's a different conversation. You, it, I'll just let the analogy. Let's be. just say cheat sheets in my day were amazing. I just picture blueprints and floor plans on your hand or something that you've yeah. Out. No, you bring a clipboard with extra pages into the test. You're teaching all the young people how to cheat on their. No, tests. no, no. I'm this just is the thing is not anymore, man. Dude, they're oh, locked down. They, I ruined it for everybody back you in did. the day. That's good though. But but then I went to him and I was like, "Hey, I got to tell you, I cheated on the test." And mm. he said, "How much did you cheat?" And I and I was like, I was like, uh, actually, this is these are the specifics by which I cheated. I told him exactly what would happen, wow. knowing that I was going to get kicked out of college because wow. I had to face it because I couldn't, in integrity, remain in that way. And he said, wow. he said, "We're going to deal with this actually just between you and me." And so, um, 
I'm going to give you a paper. And now you actually have to write a paper on Giorgio de Chirico, which wow. was the surrealist painter, which was like dark and horrible. And Everybody knows him. Yeah, you know Giorgio de Chirico. Everybody knows that. So, so it, was this, it was this crazy thing because I was like, I, I actually have to face whatever this really is because I cannot not be in integrity. And God had a way out for you. And God had a way out for me. But you also had allowed your conscience to be formed to such a point where it, it didn't kill that voice inside of you that said, I'm not going to let you sleep at night until you deal with this. Because we all have that, but we can right. deaden it and we can silence it. Yes. And that's what Israel, it seems, does. Right. right? And and it doesn't go well for them. And, and it doesn't go well. And but, sadly, but, that's where we sit with Jeremiah. But I can be sympathetic at the same time toward Israel. Can you imagine telling a, a leader, a king, let your people be conquered? Not because God's crazy or he's like, oh, let yourself be conquered. It's not arbitrary. It's that you have wrought this sin and your your forefathers and all of the kings before you you have set the scene for so much sin and darkness human beings are so amazing at our ability to rationalize right. and to not be able to hear any claim of accusation towards something that we or people around us or our family or our people who've come before us have done wrong yep we are so, there there's such a um, there's two responses, really, when you're told that actually you're in the wrong. And even people who've come before you, your family members, they've done wrong, too. We can either lash out and react with anger and, no, how dare you, which is what the people of Israel do to Jeremiah. Right. Or the only other option that I can perceive of is saying, oh, wow, that's really bad. Right. Maybe God can heal me. I mean, I, I can't turn anywhere else but to God because it's too big and it's too bad. But too often, human beings, we lash out and we get angry and we try to find the way that the other guy's actually in the wrong or I'm not actually bad. And that's, I, I had to cheat on the test or I had to, you know, pick your analogy. This is what we do. Right. I don't know. I'm just I've been thinking a lot about Jeremiah the last couple of days and how. But then. So I know we haven't really talked about the words that he says, but the words that you'll hear don't really have their full effect unless you understand really the position he's in. Right. Because like even my friends, even the people who know me and love me, they're looking for ways to call me out as a hypocrite because I'm saying these things that nobody wants to hear. I've got no allies here. There's nobody on my side. Everybody wants to kill me and thinks that what I'm saying is absurd and horrible and scandalous and treasonous. God, where are you? Help me out. Because I think that I'm doing what you've called me to do. Right. But to feel the, the pathos, I think, of what he's saying um, is important. Which, actually, to be honest with you, I think is the perfect lead into Psalm 69, which is the psalm of pathos par excellence, mm. I, I believe. Mm. <sighs> okay, so I'm thinking uh, before we move on to Psalm 69, okay. though, because I, I think it's actually good, is that... Um, I'm looking and in a, in a certain way we exist within a culture that is trying to say examine your conscience in a real way. I think that I think that people are are like um I think they're raging to the point of destruction of things because the 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 deadening of conscience it mm. it, it doesn't seem like people are actually responding to what is bad inside of them. Mm. And so, because it's a scary thing to do. It's a scary thing to do to say, okay, you know what? I'm going to face my own 
racism. Huge thing right now. Yeah. And so what happens right. is we want to do is we want to put it off and we want to put it in its, into an institutional reality. We want to put it right. uh, uh, another way. That's why when I hear, um, because I have heard the fault of, uh, he says, I become weak everywhere, Jeremiah says. And I have not been able to bear up because I've heard the fault of many. And gathered from around, all around, they gather together. Let us gather together against him, all you men friends, <laughs> all his friends. Yeah. And let's see whether his intentions um, and are valid and if he has been deceived. So it's, it, it's, this, it's a moment in, uh, that I look interiorly and I say, wow, I, I'm so thankful because, like, man, I've had to deal with the racism that exists in my own heart, and I have dealt with it. Yeah. Like, I'm good. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a man free. Mm. Um, mm. But there was a time that I really had stuff inside of me that was really, really poisonous. Right. And, and I think that, mm. that, that we rage and we go partly because if we live in a place of dead in conscience as a, as a culture as an, and as individuals, mm-hmm. which we are, by the way. Absolutely. I mean, we're in a place to where um, the, the eugenics projects against the unborn, uh, uh, particularly black children, Absolutely. if you want to look at where oh abortion clinics are, they're in black neighborhoods. Absolutely. Margaret Sanger's project that is brought to full fruition from Planned Parenthood is um, is an absolute targeting of a culture and of a people. Yeah. And so, so, so what's happening is that, is that we're actually trying to identify a problem in, right. in, the, in the wrong location, and we're allying ourselves with things that may or may not be whatever they are. I don't want to be political in right, the midst right, of all right. of this, but what I do want to say is that, like, is, that, is that it's important to see Jeremiah as that, okay, let's look and say, how do we actually recover the place by which the Holy Spirit can speak to our souls, because that's where conscience, that's what conscience is. And when you deaden and aggravate the place where the Holy Spirit's supposed to actually be communicating with you through justifications, through all sorts of stuff that, that, that Israel's doing, right. then the prophet that comes along, you just want to destroy him. Right. Absolutely. And we want to rage against him. And right. We wanna, and it evokes all, yep. And then the human cycle of sin starts again. Right. right? Which is where we are. As of all sorts of, because we we, honestly, we just want to do like, we don't want to reverence the thing that's in front of us because we, because if we do that, then we don't get to carry out our schemes in the same way. If we make real space for the being to reveal itself, then, then we, um, our concupiscence and our pride actually like, we cannot maintain our concupiscence and pride before those things that are real in front of us. And we also cannot deny the ability that God has to speak truth into our lives, even from places that we don't want it to come from. Right. Right. Even if it's the person that I actually disagree with on a whole bunch of other political things and is actually objectively wrong and all this stuff, why you might be right in my life on that thing. Right. And maybe God's actually speaking through you on that thing. That's something that I think is really hard for a lot of us, myself included, to, to swallow. Yeah, because what we want to do is we want to have big, wide swaths that we can dismiss stuff right. so that we don't actually have to deal with real things. And we want people to be categories. We don't want them to be people. We want them to fit a category that we can check off and be like, I don't like that category. Dude, that's so, therefore- so seriously phlegmatic of you. <laughs> that's why that, that was a joke because I hate the temperaments because I feel like oh, that the they put you in a category that no. you can dismiss. Oh. Like I just hate that the, the temperament personality thing. Don't get me started thing. on the temperaments. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that leads. But us I am in. a melancholic, so I love Psalm sixty nine. 
<laughs> See what I did there? That was beautiful. I wanted to do, say something like that. Here's the only thing I'm going to say about Psalm 69, which is the psalm of the most pathos, I think, in the Psalter. <laughs> it's it's so rough. It's, it's, it's where it begins, raw. save me, God, for the waters have reached up to my neck. Everyone is out to get me. They're trying to destroy me. I don't see anything. Um, the only th- there's lots we could say about um, the 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 history of this, and perhaps it's the Psalm of David when he's on the run from King Saul in the desert when everyone was out to get him. There's lots of historical guesses as to the roots of this, but the way it fits into my life, and I probably have talked about this on the podcast before, maybe maybe not. One of my very very best friends in high school when I was first coming to understand Jesus Christ in a real way. Yeah. Um, my friend was we, we were kind of coming to know who Jesus was together in, in that way of friendships and brotherhood. And it was, I, I'm so grateful for that time in my life. And my friend was on, I think he was on the Pearl street mall and he was listening to one of the street performers. And I think it was even a homeless guy who was just playing guitar. And he was singing the song about how rough his life was and how terrible things are. And the, the chorus of the song was something like, Lord, just give me a bullet to bite on. Like, give me something to bite on that I can that can get me through this thing. Almost simultaneously, my friend, who had gone through a lot of hard things and family and alcoholism and all, all sorts of just difficulties, he, as he was just at the front end of discovering Jesus Christ, read Psalm 69, the roughest psalm in the Psalter. And his response, he was struck to tears. And he was like, someone at some point in history felt what I feel. Mm. The gospel could be real. This, all of this could be real because this book is expressing how I feel in my life. And so he got a, an old bullet casing and he scrawled Psalm 69 on it and he kept it in his pocket always. That was his kind of bullet to bite on as he was going through this difficult time in life. And he's like, I can actually take one step ahead of me and actually see God before me because I've had this experience of hearing someone thousands of years ago who expressed something that I felt hmm. and that made the Bible real to him and the faith real to him. So I've always had a deep love for Psalm 69 because I've seen what it can do and what even, you know, somebody else's pathos and someone else's suffer, somebody totally removed from us, they're struggling and their heartache and their hurt. If we have the reverence that you're actually talking about can have the ability to actually convert us and transform us. Yes. So that's all I want to say about Psalm 69. Anything else would be, unfair to well, my own relationship to it <laughs> right well th- that's that scott is exactly where that's what we're trying to do when we engage here mm. um in this recording and and in this podcast is that we're trying to engage this in a sincere way in its context with its in a way that is actually a part of our lives and not yeah. just some sort of mental exercise right and that it, to to give reverence enough to the word to let it transform us in in its context lord knows it, we don't need more mental exercises right cuz i mean really all the podcast that we do is is um taking the the biblical principle that you read the word within the context of the sentence you read the sentence in the context of the paragraph the paragraph in the context of the chapter the chapter in context of the book book. and the book in the context of the whole yes and i would add the category of in the context of the culture and the the people who actually gave it to us Mm. which is to take it even a further step right which is a little bit harder to do 
But that's the stuff where when I understand what Jeremiah is actually dealing with, right? I'm like, oh, I can find the analogies there, and I can like, find I, I can find the experience of culture around me. I can right, exactly right. Like, that's what I mean. Yeah, like, like I can experience their culture because the truth is, is that we're humans. We may be all technologically and got our twitters out and stuff. It's like, Lord have mercy, got our twitters out. <laughs> It's like, it's like I just want to tweet some mean. stuff. I just want to just, this is my current Are thought. Are you on Twitter? <laughs> I am on Twitter. Right. The Facebook, Do you use the, it though? The podcast is on Twitter. Is it really? Yeah, the only thing that tweets on my Twitter stream is <laughs> the, the podcast. podcast. That's good because I don't spend much time on Twitter, but when I do, I realize it's a cesspool. It is. Like, if you want to get to if, at least the people that I follow and whatever, yeah, there's it's actually really hard. This is the thing: is it's it's a neutral it's a neutral tool of course, by which of by which my brother has of actually course. broken the 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 um the uh, method by which you can engage Twitter, and that's by promoting other broken. people's thoughts. Oh. If you yeah. you just look around for other people's thoughts and then you contribute, it's it's actually like yeah. if you take the process of Western civilization and engage it on Twitter, you actually have which is let's let's take a, a common body of knowledge, contribute to it, and comment on it. It's also the rabbinic technique. This is what rabbis did: was their rabbis were known for their ability to quote other rabbis. Right, right. That's what made you a good rabbi. Can you quote something else? Can you repackage something? Right, so we get into Romans. So, so we get into no, Romans. There's no, there's no straightforward link possible. No, well, there was to what we were talking about before, but then we went. But then, but Twitter. then I'm just saying stuff. <laughs> so no, okay. So this is. Uh, uh, let's let's see how we can make this make sense with the whole. It, okay. It's about sin, and that's important. But um, this is where G- context g- give me, again give is me important. The white, white peaks of the of the okay. river for for Romans. White, white peaks of the river. Um, the whole point, the purpose of the book of Ro- Romans is the longest book in the New Testament, uh, in Paul's letter, in the epistles at least, um, which makes it the most the most uh, susceptible for people losing Paul's train of thought because it's so long. Like my conversation like, with you earlier this morning. Like, and I kept <laughs> derailing it, yeah. Um, but really what's happening, what people forget about Romans, Romans is, is my, I, I love Romans. I have a deep, my doctoral dissertation was on Romans, as was every other theological student's doctoral dissertation. Right? <laughs> There's a dime a dozen things on Romans because it's so much. But the thing about Romans is that if you go into a library or a seminary, there's hundreds of commentaries on Romans. Most of them do not really focus on the fact that Romans was not written as a theology textbook, which is how we sometimes treat it in the church. Yeah. It's a letter to a suffering, struggling church who's dealing with real issues and problems that Paul's trying to help solve, right? It's mm-hmm. not a theological compendium. It's not a catechism. The catechism is the singular document that's meant to be a compendium of all of the church's teachings. That's not what Romans is. Romans is a pastoral document to a church who's struggling. Right. And the issue that they're struggling with is how... How do we deal with the broken relationship and the violent at times and angry, hate-filled relationship between Jewish Christians, one particular ethnic reality, and non-Jewish Gentile Christians who are stuck in the same body of Christ and church together but do not like each other? for all sorts of different reasons, ethnic reasons and cultural reasons and all sorts of other stuff. Now, because of Jesus Christ, they're sitting in the same pews next to each other, but they don't want to be there because 
Gentiles are second class Christians and they kind of came late and, you know, they really shouldn't be here in the first place and they're lucky we let them in. And on the other side, the Gentiles are saying about the Jewish Christians, well, so many of you guys rejected the Messiah to begin with and didn't even follow him and helped crucify him. Like, who do you guys think you are? And there is this real strife, real strife right, going on between these two ethnic groups. And so Paul is trying to show that in the plan of God from the very beginning, he needs you to work through your cultural and ethnic problems because God has designed a church in which you are meant to be together and need one another. Hmm, that sounds oddly contemporary. That's why I'm so like, oh, what are the odds you know, that this the readings we get. And so when he says in chapter five, kind of smack in, in at the very beginning of what I think is the central thesis of the letter, which is from chapters five through eight, right. he begins by saying, okay, okay, brothers and sisters, again, hear this as a letter being proclaimed in your parish, right? Being led from the bishop who's like, you guys got problems and we got to solve them. There goes that. Brothers and sisters, through one man, sin entered the world and through sin, death. We know that man is Adam, right? Um, and thus death came to all men, inasmuch as all sinned, for up to na- up to the time of the law, sin was in the world. But though sin is not accounted where there is no law, but death reigned from Moses to, from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin. After the pattern of the trespass of Adam, who is the type of the one who is to come. Super technical. Sounds really complicated. What he's trying to say is, hey, Jewish Christians, hey, non-Jewish Gentile Christians, people who have converted you're both trying to prove and show why you're better than the other one. Right. The Jewish Christians, because we had the law and the Torah and the covenant and all these things, all of salvation history, we're better than you guys because you guys, you Gentiles, have been off worshiping birds and statues and idols and all these terrible things. That's a direct quote from chapter two of Romans. And the Gentiles are saying, yeah, totally. You guys had the law and the Torah and the covenant. You didn't share it with us. You didn't tell us about it. So it wasn't our fault that we were worshiping these idols and worshiping statues because you didn't tell us. We didn't know any better. So we're actually better because you guys weren't responsible with what you were given. And Paul says, you know what? You, he's, like, <laughs> he's like a cynical parent. He's like, guess what? You both stink. You're both the worst. And he spends the first three chapters of the book tearing both groups apart, saying, you know what, you Gentiles? You should have known better. God wrote this thing called, called uh, natural law into your hearts that you should know that there is a God and he is good and that you shouldn't be making statues of owls and birds and other things to worship. You shouldn't put you a bird kn- on it is basically what he's saying. Shouldn't put a bird on it. But you should have known better. It's still a sin. You're still an idolatry. And you Jewish people, you should have known better as well. Yes, you should have shown, shared the covenant with the rest of the world and been the light to the world. But you also worshipped some idols. Remember right. that calf incident that happened in Exodus? So he's literally tearing everybody down to show in his central thesis here that the reality of sin is universal. No one escapes it because our first human ancestors disobeyed God and broke their trust with him. The reality of sin is universal because he's actually answering a question that we didn't ask here when he talks about from the time before the law. Well, how can there be transgression when there's no law to break? If there wasn't 10 commandments, 10 commandments don't show up in the Bible until Exodus. So does that mean no one sinned throughout all of Genesis? Of course not. Sin is universal. The patriarchs knew that they shouldn't sleep with other people's wives. They knew they shouldn't kill. They knew all of these things because it was written in their hearts. And you Gentiles, even though you didn't have the words of the law, you knew 
Sin is universal. No one gets out of it. No one's off the hook here. You're all guilty. And until you can reckon with and come face to face with that real guilt of a broken world that we are all born into, you can never recognize the need for a savior. And so until you recognize that we are broken and we are sinners and our ancestors are sinners and we've all gone far from God because the universe, the, the nature of sin is universal, you will never understand the one who actually came to save you from the universal nature of sin. That's what he's saying here. And it, it matters that the context is what it is, especially in our contemporary age, because it takes a great deal of humility to be like, yeah, we've really failed. I've really failed in these ways. My family have failed. The people who came before me have failed. Yeah, we, we need God to get us out of this. I mean, I really do. Look, I watch the news and I'm, there's so many things, you know, I, I have two black children of, of my three kids who, you know, and there, and I don't talk about my family a lot on the podcast, but I mean, statistically speaking, my two black children should, they had an 80%, this is statistics. They had an 80% chance of being aborted because of the circumstances that they were born into and their what life would have looked like. And so I feel so passionately raise my voice, scream at the top of my lungs, tears in my eyes, passionate about the abortion question and of how racist the history and roots of abortion is and are. But I also have to deal with my two black children who are being raised in a world that is not fixed yet and is still problematic. And again, this is what Paul's talking about until we realize, look, the nature of sin is universal. It's over here. It's actually over there. It manifests itself in this way, manifests itself in abortion, economics, and all these ways. Until you actually come to face-to-face with that, why do you need a savior at all? Right. Why do you need a savior if you think everything's fine? But once you realize, yeah, no, sin is out of control. I really need Jesus. Then we can take the first step. Then right. we can be in Jeremiah's time and say, all right, now we can solve it. Or now we can allow you to solve it. Right. Which I think is actually a good segue into the gospel. You know, what I what I really hope is that, um, I mean, in the gospel, if we make it past June 21st, which is the Mayan calendar according to... I thought it was today. No. Oh, I thought the world was supposed to end today. Is it on the 21st? 21st, because oh, it's, the, it's, the, uh, it's, the, uh, it's the full... The recalibration massive, of the Mayan calendar? Yeah, it's a recalibration Mayan calendar. We, so we calibrated according to the Julian calendar, mm. and if we go to the Gregorian calendar, Classic. then we get... It was not 20... Is it, it wasn't 2012, it's June 21st, 2020. Yeah. So then what happens is that there's a gigantic eclipse that touches the Holy Land and a lot of the... Um, and a lot of the uh, uh, of India, and uh, so then it's it's a full coronal. It's a full. It's the most coronal um, uh, eclipse that has uh, t- will take place in this uh, in a hundred years. Which is funny because this has been the most coronal year that I've seen yet. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> to put that's that right. I'll I just need leave to, that over you there. You know what? I need to go to the eye doctor now that we're talking. <laughs> I'm thinking. So if we make it past the uh. if, if we make it past the twenty first. I and and that we kind of realize that um, the political solution is a part of things. We always have to be engaged politically. Of course. Then I actually think that we're heading towards a beautiful renewal within the church. This is actually the I, I actually so, I actually think that that part of what's taken place over time. Um, in relationship to how the church approaches herself, because we live in a humiliated church. That's true. Uh, our sins are s- so powerfully out there, that, and 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 I say, okay, God, well then, what is your what is your process of the humiliated church? Is to say, well, well let's actually engage 
out of the truth of wh- how we relate to God in a way that is laid very, very bare and and go forth. And I actually think that, that it could be a really, really beautiful time in the church coming. As long as we take that reality of a humility to church because of sin, of other people, right. other people's sin. Right. But until we actually have some real humility over that, because again, my reaction is I want to defend. I want to fight. I want to argue. I want to debate and show why it's actually not as bad as it seems it is, as it is. When in reality, I mean, I think the stance of the church has to be like, wow, we really messed up. People who are not me. I actually don't know any priest who was involved in any of these things that happened. Right. Guess what? It's still on me. I'm a representative of the church. You are still right. a priest of Jesus Christ. Yep. We need to deal with sins of people who we don't even know. Who which we didn't is, even come in contact which, which is, is the uh, life of the church from the beginning. Which is the life of Jesus. Which, which is, is the life the, of Jesus. Yeah. Which we say, okay, yeah. And so, um, yes, this may take place, and but, but reparation is at the core of the life of the church. Right. That, for the sins that are not my own. And that's what we do. That's what you do whenever you hear someone's confession. The job of the priest is, yeah, you give penance to the penitent. Right. But then you priests also take on reparation for the penitents. Right. For sins you didn't do. Which, which is, I think is beautiful. Which is why I think it's really cool that we, when we get into Matthew, it says, don't be afraid of them. Let's talk about the context. Did you read the context? I did. I'm frustrated. I'll be on- I'm going to be honest. I'm Hit me. frustrated that we didn't get a couple verses prior to this I because know. it sure would connect the dots more explicitly, I wouldn't know. it? So let me read you what happens starting in verse 16. Ten verses prior. To what we get. Um, this is, yeah, okay. He says this. It's, it's right before he sends out the disciples on mission um, to go and proclaim. Which is important for the ordinary time because that's at its core. That's what we do. We go out. Let's get going. But Jesus says, behold. Now think of this in context, of course, of Jeremiah and what we just read. He says, behold, I'm sending you like sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents or clever as serpents and simple as doves. But beware of people. <laughs> Which is just a, that's a good line. <laughs> Beware of people, period. No, I'm just kidding. For they will hand you over to the courts and they will scourge you in their synagogues and they will you will be led before governors and kings for my sake and witness before them and the pagans. And when they hand you over, don't worry about how you are to speak or what you are to don't say. Don't be anxious. I think that's don't an important anxious. word in this age. Right. What am I going to say? What am I going to do? Don't be I, anxious I, about I what you're going to do. I am always anxious about what I'm going to do and what I'm going to say. This is right. so convicting to me because I go through my life. I'm like, okay, can I answer for this? Can I say this? Can I articulate this? Can I beat someone in debate about this? I'm always anxious about this. And then that's why you hang out with me who's never anxious about a thing. Never. For it will, uh, what does it say? For it will not be to you who speak, but the spirit of the father speaking through you. Brother will hand over brother to death and father his child. Children will raise up against parents and put them to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. And whoever endures till the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to another. Amen, I say to you, you will not finish the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. No disciple is above his teacher, no slave above his master. And it goes on. To not have the context through which Jesus then says in the reading that we get, fear no one, nothing was is concealed that won't be revealed, no secret won't be uh, known. What I say to you in the darkness, speak in the light. To not have the context of what Jeremiah had to do. You're going to go in front of people and you're going to say hard things. Yeah, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Fear him who can destroy both soul and deliver you to hell. Fear the right things. Right. And don't fear the wrong things. Right. We are so, as a culture, we are so terrified of each other. 
I don't know if we've ever lived in a time in history where we were so terrified of our neighbor. What I was actually, this is the most frustrating thing about um, the coronal quarantine was the uh, weaponization of my neighbor. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Is, is that is that like as as my as like I gave the first hug to my parents, mm. the the what? fear. I'm just kidding. No, no, the <laughs> I'm, re, I'm the real fear stupid. of of like, hold on, did we just right. did, did I just is kill this you? Okay, did, did, did I do the right? Yeah, like 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 yeah. It, it was this. Do you portray mm. the son of man with a kiss? Oh, like, geez. no, I mean, <laughs> oh, it, it, I mean, like that's where that's where it's it real. feels like in relationship to our neighbor. Yeah. And um and, and so it's yeah, saying like yeah. well, how do we actually fear the right thing because we have got a real message, and ultimately what we are to fear I I don't think we're not even called to fear the evil one I mean Jesus says this and that that's where the real threat is right what we if we're called to fear anything it's that we will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus someday and we will have to reckon an account of what we did and what we did not do right and what rendered us paralyzed by fear. Because we couldn't say that thing, and I couldn't love these people that way, or I couldn't do whatever it was. The fear should be, am I not being faithful to the vocation that God has given me in my life? Right. Am I shirking my responsibilities as a Christian, as a father, as a husband, as a priest, as a friend, as a neighbor, because I'm so afraid of what might happen? If I speak against abortion, and I talk about the circumstances that my kids were born out of— a whole bunch of my friends are going to get mad about me or at me. If I speak that I'm worried about racial injustice that will face my kids as they grow up, a whole bunch of other friends are probably going to get mad or offended or scandalized by me. Right. I get in a, in a very, my limited, comfortable, suburban way, I get in a some sense when Jesus says, everyone is going to hate you, <laughs> right? They're all going to hate something you say. And to the degree that we are trying to please a political party or a group of friends or just be comfortable and have everybody like us, we are not actually being true to the vocation of the gospel, which just the gospel ticks people off from the beginning. That's what Jeremiah is being shown as a a precursor to the gospel. That's what the apostles are being warmed about, but then constantly being reminded, but do not fear. This is reality. And if we know what's coming— there's something comforting. Like, it's going to hurt. Right. It's gonna, you know, if you're at the doctor and you're about to get a shot, right? There's something about, like, it's going to hurt. I always hate it when doctors are like, you're not going to feel a thing. Like, what? Dude, yeah, just, of course you're going to feel a thing. Just, just look tell it me up it's on YouTube, hurt. dude. Oh, jeez. No, <laughs> no thank so, you. I don't know how it happened, but somehow oh, on my no. YouTube algorithm, it fed me some poor girl oh, who no. is, like, literally losing her mind oh, when she was going to get a shot. <laughs> <laughs> and but which is there's something to that, right? Because right. that is proclaiming. That's being evangelistic. That's being someone who goes and proclaims the gospel. You could be terrified. We can render ourselves paralyzed by the terror of what happens if I preach the gospel. What happens if I live this out? What happens if I, whatever it is that is is our public way of following Jesus, and but we can't live in that. And right if you in. know, yeah, it's going to hurt a little bit. Let's get over that and let's move on now. And um, and those consequences are not out of the providence of God. Uh, the, the, like, that's the thing is that it's sure. the I, most important thing. Right. I could have gotten kicked out of college for the cheating that I'd done. Me, Mary could have gotten stoned for saying what she's, for, for being truthful to Joseph about the, the situation with God. Jeremiah we, could have been killed right. by his friends and his brothers for what he said. Right. And, and, and we still have to go through all of these things. And yet, what is, what, where do we end up with Jeremiah? He says, my story is going to be proclaimed until the end. 
Uh, Which it, it is. Odd perpetuum. So what do we have? Three more days till the end? Yeah, um, three more days. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, three more days to proclaim him. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, so you know, capitalize on your plane tickets now or something. <laughs> you know, I, I I don't think it's the end of the world. I think it's actually the end of a it's world as we know it. And I feel fine. Ah, nice. <laughs> you guys, thanks for joining us. Um, it, um, there's a lot. There's just a lot. And you guys are a lot. And we're a lot. And... But do God not fear kind. those who can kill the body. Yeah, but they can't touch the soul. Just be courageous. Like, listen to what the Lord has for you. And um, it is, uh, uh, it may have its consequences. And those consequences are always in the providence of God. So do not be afraid. Amen. God bless you. See you next week. Okay. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash A-I-C-T. And you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.